Welcome to this moment in democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on March 20th, 2023. Today, I'm speaking with New York Times staff writer, Jane Koston. Jane Koston is an opinion staffer at the New York Times. Previously, she was the host of opinions podcast, The Argument. She has reported on conservative politics, the GOP, and the rise of the American right. She also co-hosted the podcast, The Weeds. Hi, Jane. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor. Well, it's really uh, our pleasure. I think uh, you know, we, off camera uh, earlier, we got a chance to talk a little bit about um, some of your columns and uh, they're fascinating because I think we have a sense of, at least I feel I have a sense of the direction conservative politics has taken, but you really put it in a way that um, I think truly resonates and a lot of people uh, can feel. And so I, I wanted to just uh, talk to you about maybe your last article uh, where you say that mm-hmm. uh, the Republican Party is trying to find a path that includes both defiant hedonism and the moralistic foundations of traditional Buckley-esque conservatism. Why don't we unpack that a little bit uh, here? Because I think um, as well as anyone, you, you've done a great job of doing just that. Yeah, I think that something that I've been so fascinated by is the conservatism that's not a conservatism of ideology but a conservatism of feels. The idea, not that you're, at, you're tethered to any specific economic policy or you know, trickle-down economics, but that this, there used to be something better and now it's not as good and it is likely to become worse. And I was struck by how so much of what people might be longing for is not the ideal of the 1950s or the 1950s even of their invention. Though it's interesting you go back and read Buckley And he's writing in the 1950s, basically being kind of longing for an earlier decade, even from then. And so I was struck by how people, specifically men, might be longing for the ideal for them of the 1980s. And they're not longing for Reagan era conservatism. They're longing for a time when everything was just hornier, when there were a lot of teen sex comedies, and it just seemed like Met, you were given permission to do things and there was really no one who was going to tell you what to do. Now, the fascinating thing to me about this is that it's not an inherently conservative worldview. In fact, the, the people telling them what to do in the 1980s largely would have been, say, the moral majority. But it's this idea that there is a conservatism of how you feel about the environments you're in, how you feel about certain ideas And I think that you see the Republican Party now trying to balance between being the party that says, yeah, we're not going to tell you what to do. You're cool, kind of being the the cool mob of politics. But that's as I write, that's not their natural affect, because at a certain point on a number of issues, including abortion, there will be moments in which conservatives are trying to tell people what to do. And so I thought it was an interesting moment in which you see this effort largely from conservative men to come across as being, we're the bad boys of politics. Conservatism is punk rock now, but also that would rely on a conservatism that isn't about telling anyone what to do. It's, it's truly fascinating. You know, I'm old enough to remember George will being on uh, this week with David Brinkley and, and actually um, arguing uh, about a country that is, um, he was talking about Bill Clinton in the Clinton era and how we were a country that was just so fascinated by anything that titillates. And I want to ask, how how did we go from Reagan conservatism to this, as you describe it, uh, this really uh, fascinating term, horny bro aesthetic? How did we go from there to here? I, I think you're right. I think we are. That's a, your description is so spot on. 
What was that path? How did, how did that happen? Well, I think that, it, that there's always been this kind of two-tiered aesthetic um, within conservatism on a number of issues. And I've written about it before, that there's kind of the conservatism of National Review and the Heritage Foundation and the conservatism of Rush Limbaugh. Let's keep in mind that one of Rush Limbaugh's more famous moments was calling uh, Sandra Fluke a slut in 2012, I believe. And so there's always been this two-tiered version of conservatism. And you see that also in that William F. Buckley both denounced Penthouse Magazine and wrote for Penthouse Magazine. And so I think that there's always been this sense of both attempting to adhere to a very specific sexual ethic, but also recognizing that most of the people you're trying to get to vote for you don't want to adhere to that sexual ethic. And that's fine. Other people aren't fine, but that's fine. Well, absolutely. And, you know, you've given this, this trajectory um, and it, it's clear uh, and you, you allude to this, that we shouldn't blame Trump per se for this um, this movement, if you want to call it that. Um, there's been a tradition of right wing politicians who made their mark by, as you describe it, vice signaling. Could you elaborate on that term? Another interesting um, turn of phrase that I think uh, does uh, illuminate. What do you mean by that? I think uh, vice signaling, people probably have heard the idea of virtue signaling, which is that you want to signify your virtue, not because you have your virtue, but because you want other people to know about it. Um, It actually comes to me. um, I was raised Catholic and Christian, and so I often think about scripture, the idea that you would, uh, there's a, a moment in which Jesus Christ is telling a story to his followers And he says, do not be the man who's seen out praying on the street. Go home, pray in your room. Don't you, because you you don't want to be seen praying because it's clear that you're doing it as a performative performative exercise. And with vice signaling, vice signaling is essentially being a terrible person, but essentially arguing that everyone is a terrible person. You're just honest about it. That virtue signaling is false, but vice signaling is true that you are, you're more honest and that actually everyone is terrible and no one is good. Um, I wrote about it for the Times and I remember finding a tweet that someone, that someone accused the Pope of virtue signaling, which was fascinating because that's the entire point of being Pope is to be a person <laughs> who signals virtue. That's, that's sort it, of his job description, right? <laughs> yeah, that's part of the, the whole thing. But the idea of vice signaling is that if you just show how terrible you are, you essentially are also arguing that everyone's terrible. You're just honest about it, that everyone actually hates women or minorities or whatever group. It's just that everybody else is virtue signaling while you're keeping it real. Well, I, we, we probably all can recall Donald Trump uh, in that infamous recording uh, where he was describing um, being able to get away with any amount of, uh, you know, infractions, uh, to use a euphemism, with respect to women. Uh, and yet somehow uh, the explanation that, as you suggest, that, you know, this is the way men talk, this is who we are, um, sort of was able to carry the day. Um, and I suppose the recent news that um, at, at any given moment he's going to be indicted um, uh, for uh, his connection with Stormy Daniels just um you know, underscores all of this, does it not? And I I think that that's the fascinating thing we've seen over the last couple of years in that if you were to criticize Donald Trump on the basis of, 
let's not get into like payments to anyone. If you were to criticize Donald Trump on the basis of having an affair with anyone, let alone an adult film actress, um, because again, he was cheating on his wife. That's you virtue signaling that actually the best thing would be to relish in the vice because you're no better than he is. And I think that the, the thing I want to get across also is that I think that vice signaling comes as a response in, to me to the obvious hypocrisy that we've seen over the, you know, over the last 30, 40, 50 years. How many times have we seen that someone who is supposed to be morally upstanding turns out to be you know, either a terrible person or a criminal person? And I think that for many people, virtue signaling seems false, but vice signaling seems real. If you accept that everyone is terrible and that no one is good, that seems, I think, to some people more realistic than the idea of attempting to uphold virtue. But again, the point of signaling virtue is a good thing. It is good to perform virtue. It's not good to be a hypocrite. But the entire point of being a hypocrite is that you aren't actually virtuous. So I think that it gets at something that I think people sense all in their everyday lives, that there are people who are saying one thing and doing another. But instead of asking them to be virtuous throughout their life, there are people who seem to be wanting people to be full of vice in their everyday life. I wonder, Jane, if you've uh, thought about whether or not there's an equivalent to this on the left. Uh, Is there a, a politics uh, of feels or conservatism, or I should say liberalism of feels on the left. Uh, Absolutely. And I think that um, I think that most people's politics are the politics of feels. And you can see this on issues like criminal justice reform. And this and it's very difficult for me. And I think it's very difficult for everyone, because I think we all have people who were like criminal justice reform, except not for that guy. And so we see all the time in that, for example, we hear about people wanting to uh, reduce penalties on specific actions or um, you know, reduce the number of people in prison. But then someone does something truly terrible and you're like, oh, but that guy has to go to jail right now. Um, and I think about, say, the people who commit, you know, the police officers who kill uh, unarmed people. I think all the time about how the response to that from the very same people who would be saying, you know, we need to reduce the number of people in prison, we need to reduce the number of prisons, would be saying, but that guy needs to go to prison, which is an entirely understandable thing to want. It is just, it is not politically coherent, but most people aren't politically coherent. Most people vote not in the way, you know, most people do not actually have a strong political through line that guides their lives. Most people vote for the same reasons anybody does. I have definitely voted for people because I was like, well, the other guy's really annoying to me personally. You know, I don't have some like grand theory of it. He's, I just find this person irritating. And I also think that we see how so often the prescriptions of liberalism, of what people want, can be used as a cudgel against people, where it becomes, you're not as liberal as I am, you aren't as lefty as I am, we, I think we see this a lot online, specifically, in which we have people who kind of beat you over the head with their progressive bona fides in a way that does feel very, it feels false, because I feel as if that there needs to be, there is, a, there should be a progressivism of feels. While you are advocating for justice and equality, I think you also need to be not a jerk while doing so. And I think we see all too often that that 
ideology of feels is something that we all engage in, in which we have a lot of things where like, well, I did feel this way, but then this one person like really drove me nuts. So now I don't feel that way anymore. And I think that on the left, we also see something in which one thing that I find fascinating is that the left falls prey often to this, to a purity spiral that can happen because there is no, because the idea that you would moderate in order to win, well, actually winning sometimes means that you would have to moderate. So maybe it's better to not win. Maybe it's better to live in a world in which anything is possible because you've never actually found out. And so I think that both, you know, all political sides are, are vulnerable to kind of a feels-based politics in which you say things that don't actually make coherent sense, but then you think about it in context and they kind of do because it's based on where you are in this moment. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting point. And, you know, um, and I'm glad you're raising this. As we approach this holy season for some, uh, thinking right. about uh, the the uh, the scripture uh, of uh, not um, making faces and uh, looking hard while you fast, <laughs> rather, you know, shine up your face and, uh, people want you to know they're suffering, or people want you to know how. Right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's 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 the per, there there is a performativity, and it, it, it's actually I'm, I'm glad you meant, mentioned that because there is this kind of like you are not supposed to spend Lenten fasting going on about how hard Lenten fasting is. Right. Oh, I, I could go for a good snack right now, but I'm exactly <laughs> right. No, I appreciate it. Well, listen, I, you know, so so many directions we could go, but I want to shift gears just a little bit to talk about some of your writing and, and thoughts on race and politics. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. many uh, on the left have been um, wringing hands over the and have been perplexed over the uh, recent trend, um, how strong it is. I, I don't know. Perhaps you could you could shed light on it uh, of uh, uh, some non-white uh, identity groups, Latinos, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Asian Americans. Uh, moving towards the Republican Party since uh, 2018. Um, why is that? Uh, is that overblown? I, I know I've read a lot of columns about black men shifting right in the last election or voting increasingly for Trump. It, what do you think of that? Is that is A, is it true or overblown? And B, uh, what might be some of the reasons for it? Well, I think that uh, true and overblown can both be true. Um, it's interesting. One, this is a phenomenon. I've written about this before. This is predominantly happening among men. Um, I believe I, I would need to double check this, uh, for, uh, for 2020, but I'm pretty sure I remember when I was looking this up, the approval rating in, um, for Donald Trump, I think in, uh, Pennsylvania among black women, it was something like 8%. Like you could get, you could collect the number of people who were supportive of Donald Trump, number of black women who were supportive of Donald Trump in the state of Pennsylvania could have fit in like a reason, like in a dorm room. Right. And so I think it's, it's one, it's, it's worth breaking this out a little bit more because it tends to be something in which people use it either as like, isn't this great or isn't this terrible? Well, I would say that like, isn't this a phenomenon that kind of makes sense? One. Um, we are terrible at talking about different groups and not doing that thing where it's like, you know, I always used to joke about how, um, you know, I'm biracial, I'm black and white, but whenever people talk about the black community, I always, I'm like, do we have a zoom? Is there like an invite that I'm supposed to get? Like, I just imagine like all of us in one room, like, you know, Barack Obama and LeBron arguing about something in the corner. Um, right. But I think that often, 
we talk about these groups as if they are homogeneous. When if you are a Cuban American living in Florida, or you're someone living from move who just moved here from El Salvador and got citizenship, and you're living in Seattle, you have entirely different experiences and very different politics. You might be more religiously inclined and thus more socially conservative. Though interestingly, African Americans also tend to be religiously inclined and socially conservative, but they don't vote for Republicans because of hit the you know historical impact of the last say 60 years and so i think that it's really important putting all of this into context and not thinking about it as in terms of how dare these people make this decision or yay these people have made this decision but asking a lot of questions about which people what decision have they made how what does this mean because a lot of it has to do with gender it has to do with age it has to do with religion but it also has to do with the specifics of where they're voting and who they're voting for. They're, the Republicans that they are voting for in, say, uh, the Rio Grande Valley are going to be different kinds of Republicans than the Republicans who are running in Indianapolis. And so I think it's really worth getting, um, getting into that context. Because I do think that what we're seeing is increasing, like a number of non-white Americans who are increasing their vote for Republicans, but we are not seeing a large number of African Americans voting for Republicans. We're seeing like, you know, folks who are of Chinese descent, folks who are um, who are Latino in specific areas choosing to vote for Republicans. But again, they're voting for very specific Republicans in very specific ways for very specific reasons. They might be voting on the basis of concerns over schools, like in San Francisco or Virginia. They might be voting with regard to concerns about the economy in Texas or Florida. So it, it's really necessary to keep this in context because I think that there's this idea that like, you know, you'll find like some, like it doesn't mean all and it doesn't mean everyone. This is a specific phenomena that I think is really worth breaking out and putting into context. Well, I, it's very refreshing to get such a nuanced um, view of a very entangled phenomenon, identity, right? Um, I, too, uh, for the record, Jane, did not get my Black Twitter yeah. community nope. identity card. They, that did not come in the mail. <laughs> so uh, it's great to, to, to have a conversation about, um, you know, the, you know, the uh, heterodox slash uh, diverse quality of these groups. And, and I think it's always important um to bring that to light so thank you for, for doing that um and then speaking of twitter i'm, I'm really upset I, I have to say because i see uh i've read that you're taking time off twitter you, you wrote mm -hmm. because it's slowly driving you insane and here i just followed you and and now i'm, I, I'm gonna I go down uh, what's going on why don't you tell us about a little bit in all seriousness i'm ha i'm a little bit yeah, angry well, actually but in all seriousness what's going on um, well, I, I like taking breaks for Lent. I think that that's a good idea. But I also felt as if there were a lot of moments in which I realized that Twitter has a me has, and I think social media in general is very flattening, but it also, it creates news that isn't news and then becomes the answer to the news that isn't news. Um, for example, if you've ever tried to explain something that's going on Twitter, on, on Twitter to someone who isn't on Twitter, you sound like you're insane. You sound like you have absolutely lost your mind. And yeah. I, I was tired of that. I was tired of feeling I was very connected to what was going on on Twitter, but I felt disconnected from a lot of other things. Like, it, I, you know, I obviously work for a major news outlet. 
but I need I wanted to spend more time reading um I wanted to spend more time not just kind of getting into long arguments with someone with 300 followers where I was like why am I doing this why mm. am I why am I doing this and so I think that Twitter often can also make you feel like you're you're doing something it feels like an activity but it isn't and so I think that um there's a real sense that for me that it was just becoming an occupation when I already have one. Mm. Well, amen to that. Yeah, no, I, I, for sure. And it certainly requires a, a good deal of um, emotional energy at times just to, uh, to fend off uh, all that's out there. I appreciate you, you sharing that with us. And I think those are all great reasons uh, to take a break uh, from social media in general. So uh, really appreciate it. Well, uh, and before I, I ask a kind of a final question, um, let me just uh, ask you, given uh, where we are um, in, in our uh, present state of democracy in America, um, how hopeful are you that um, we, let's say maybe, let's put it this way, the next four or five years will be better than the past four or five years? How do you feel about that? I think that there's a good chance it could be better. I also think that for me, and I, I, people get very annoyed sometimes because I think that there is this, a, this, the, there is an ideal of catastrophizing everything. Um, but I have also found, I wrote something about doomerism and about how people think that telling everyone that like everything is going to keep getting worse will drive them to do, to make, to do action to stop it. But that's not actually how people act. When you, if you know that things are not going to improve, you tend to actually back off. You tend to take less action. And so I find that for me, working from a place of hope also gives me a, a locus of action. It makes it so important to do something because if I know that something is possible, then I will work towards making that happen. And I think that it's really worth saying, like, it's, it would be way easier if everything was just going to be terrible. It would be way easier to just be like, well, in five years, this will all be moot because the country will be destroyed. But it's actually much more difficult to know that in five years we will have something better, but we have to work to go get it. I think that, you know, I, I, not to get too personal, but when I was in high school, I had a lot of a really serious battle with depression. And I remember thinking like, well, you know, I don't really need to think about college or anything because I'm just not going to make it there. I did. And it turns out I had a lot to think about with college and I had a lot to think about with my future. And that was difficult, but it was good. And I think that I, I refuse to give in to some sort of catastrophic situation or scenario. One, because as a student of history, I can find so many examples in which things were much, much worse. I think that that's one of the nice things about being off Twitter is that sometimes people tend to, you know, catastrophize on Twitter and then you go outside and you're like, things seem pretty okay. People are eating bagels and living their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know, there seems like there's some hard stuff going on out there, but like uh, there's some ducks over there. They seem like they're having a nice time. And I think that it, it's, it's worth keeping that kind of keeping that kind of focus. It's very distracting to go into really dark places, but staying focused on what could be a better future, I, f I find helps to fuel me. Jane, if you had to choose a song, to define this moment in democracy right now, what would it be? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, do you like Steely Dan? Of course. Who among us? Who among us doesn't enjoy Steely Dan? Yes. So uh, my favorite um, Steely Dan album is "The Royal Scam," and I would probably say that that's the song. 
and it's a song it's about um immigrants coming to the united states who have bought into this ideal about america and then come to find out that it's not true but it's i think it's a moment in which a lot of people are having a time in which they a lot of things they thought about american democracy haven't turned out the way that they expected but i would also say that it's 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 not a very optimistic song but i'm a very optimistic person so i would also put in happiness by goldfrapp because it's a song that just it's you know one of the main lines is like how did you get to be happiness how did you get to find love and so i know that that's a strange pairing of songs but i think about all the time about how you can have this moment of recognition that things aren't the way they should be but also a deep belief that things can be better I don't think I can uh, conjure up a better way to end this podcast than than that hopeful and, and lovely note. Uh, Jane Coaston, thank you so much for being with us and, and sharing um, the political, the personal, all in one. Really, truly um, a pleasure to have you. Where, where can folks find you when you're back on Twitter or elsewhere? Uh, when I'm back on Twitter, um, I'm at the New York Times, uh, Jane Coaston. Um, you can find me on Twitter when I come back, um, at Jane Coaston. And this has been such a joy. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly been our pleasure. Thank you. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy is made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. To learn more about the Institute, visit eagleton.rutgers.edu and follow Eagleton on social media. Thanks for joining us. 